Uh, I, I, every time I hear that last song we played, Here is Love, I'm always reminded of that's the classic song. That is the theme song of the Welsh Revival. And I heard a new story about that this week. And I imagine stories will be written about that whole thing until Jesus comes. But uh, apparently, um, as that took place there in Wales on the backside of the country, uh, there were just, it was just farming area, much like our own. Uh, and there was a, a pastor of a very small church. Very small, very small country church back in the 1800s. Picture that. He lived in a very poor home, too. It was just a small rural place. And um, he preached a sermon one Sunday. And this was during the time of the Welsh Revival. And at that point, the revival hadn't yet spread to his part of Wales. But he preached this message. And thousands, thousands came to Christ. Not all out of his little building, because it wouldn't be any bigger than probably this section of chairs just right here. But the people in those pews turned into flames of fire and spread in thousands. Well, this one preacher that delighted in preaching was determined to find out where this country preacher got that sermon. That was what he wanted to know. So he traveled to that that hamlet, I guess as they call him, whatever. And he, and he found that preacher, that old pastor, and he said, where did you get that sermon? Where did you get it? He goes, well, I guess I can show you. So he took him to his little home, and he took him into a, a, a dingy side room, and it had one window, this very small desk where he prepared And the pastor stood there and he said, "Uh, got it right there. And he pointed to a worn place in the carpet in front of that window. And he said, a couple weeks ago, I was burdened for my country. And it was about the afternoon. And And I knelt there looking out at the countryside and I just imagined God's love for His people. I thought about the ministry of Jesus. And I began to pray. Pretty soon, the sun began to go down. And I just prayed. Next thing I know, the stars were out. And I just prayed. And I prayed, and pretty soon, there was a little silver across the landscape. And then the sun began to come up, and I just prayed. And finally, the blue skies were fully illuminated. And God gave me the message. And I'm just listening to this going, that's a long time to pray. But that's what he did. He was so burdened and so moved and so led by the the passion of the love of the gospel of Jesus and for his countrymen that he stayed there in front of that window praying and talking to God that the whole night passed and God gave him a sermon in about a 30 or 40 minute delivery. I don't know how long it was that that ended up with the conversion of thousands. More was done in that one night of prayer than was done in all the time before. Now we need to take issue with this. You won't find that in the church growth conferences. You won't read it about it in ministry magazines. It doesn't sell. 
It's not hip and cool and you won't find it as part of a new church plant. It doesn't require electricity or smoke or lasers or anything for that matter. You don't even have to be articulate. What you have to be is broken, humble, determined. And that's exactly how God has used his people when it comes to bringing revival to nations ever since the beginning. So I asked myself, I I still can't get, I know how my knees feel just praying over here a little while. I can't imagine all night he prayed to be lost in rapture of the presence of the Spirit of God. So, basically, he's a good illustration to lead into what we've been talking about, losing your grip to find his. This pastor of this country church lost his grip and he found the Lord's. And God did an amazing thing just through some time spent with him. We are losing our grip. Much of what we've known to be common in our world has changed. Most of us don't recognize things anymore, and we take issue with it. And we understand that there's always going to be some kind of crisis as of late. There will never not be a crisis Something to take issue with and fight over and be contentious about. And I want us to realize today, that's not a new thing. Ever since the fall, there has been conflict and junk. And God has used it to bring about his purposes. I'm not dismissing the severity of it, because it is severe. And I think all of us know why we experience some of the things we're experiencing today in our country. We know that God's hand is moving against it. But even in this, His grace extends. So I want to look at a person today that you've often heard about, and I want to look at his humanity. And this is Elijah. This is found, Elijah breaks on the scenes of Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 17. And I'm going to go and actually start in verse or chapter 19. So Elisha the Tish, or Elijah the Tishbite jumps on the pages of Scripture. And he's a fiery soul, man. I mean, he just starts in with a bang. But instantly, if you read in chapter 17, he announces a drought and runs off. <laughs> and God takes him to a brook, Cherith, to be taken care of by ravens for a, for a season. God launches his ministry in a huge way, and then he takes him to a brook. And in that, Elijah, I think, has to learn about silence. Most of us are very uncomfortable with silence. We don't do well with it, which is why I think we have a hard time praying. We don't know what to do. We need to be doing something. But Elijah's there, And God finally dried up the brook because the drought had come. And then he sends him on his way and he lets him meet a a widow and he helps her with some flour and oil. And and then uh, he goes off and 
as, as we know, there's finally this great conflict between the prophets of Baal and the one prophet of God on Mount Carmel. A very high, desolate mountain next to the ocean. He had no water source. God goes to Ahab, who had been looking for him, the most, one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history, and his wife helped him be that way, okay, Jezebel. But he wanted Ahab dead. I mean, he wanted, uh, Ahab wanted Elijah to be dead. Jezebel was busy as, a, as just a side business, killing all the prophets of God. And, of course, because of the sins of Jeroboam, worshiping golden calves and false idols and Asherahs and Baals and all of this stuff, which involved child sacrifice and sexual perversion, and just about everything that we have today, but it's not called by the same name, same stuff, ends up at the same source, going the same direction. God sends his prophet, Elijah. Presents himself to Obadiah, who I think is also the book that we have in the Old Testament too, was one of the governors in the house of Ahab who had been hiding God's prophets. He, spent, he, he hid a hundred of them, 50 to a cave. And he's out and, Ahab, and Elijah appears to Obadiah as they're out looking for grass. And Obadiah freaks out. What have I done to you to go tell Ahab I saw you and he's going to kill me because I saw you and then he's going to come look for you and you're not going to be there, you know. And Elijah said, no, you, you tell him this, bring him to present. I'm going to present him myself to him and then we're going to have a showdown. And he did. Miraculous stuff that's happening in Elijah's life. His ministry up to so far has just been huge events that are supernatural. There, there, there they are on Mount Carmel. 450 prophets of Baal built an altar. They put all the wood under it. Everything's on it. And the God that answers by fire, he's the one that is God. So they begin to cut themselves, dance, and do all kinds of things. Elijah mocks them a little because that's his personality. Okay. Rough, rough guy, you know. Probably wore leather gloves. I mean, he was, he was a, he'd make a good farmer, I think or rancher, or miner, or any of those. He, he was just hard. He was hardcore. Well, they get finished and tuckered out, and finally he goes over and he says, Lord, today you are turning the hearts of this people back to you, and so, Lord, to let them know that I am your prophet and that you have sent me, consume this sacrifice. And, and by this time, he had filled it all up with seawater. It's drenched. And then, boom, there it goes, right? Vaporizes everything. And then they did the only appropriate thing a human could do. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Of course he is. And I was reading that, and Elijah's standing there just going, wow, seize the prophets. And, he, and they did. And then they killed them all in one stroke. And Ahab's just like, because he, he didn't like that much. And he goes home and tells his wife, and then she gets really mad. Here's where the humanity enters in. Elijah's been used in mighty ways. He's seen what God can do. They, they, they go off and deal with those prophets of Baal. Jezebel sends word back to him and says, I'm going to do the same thing you tomorrow, by tomorrow. You're done. This mighty, rough, hardcore man runs in fear from a lady. Powerful lady. 
But he runs away. For the first time, he shows fear. He runs off as far as he can get out of that area and actually, in God's providence, retraces the steps that the children of Israel took from where he was going to go to Mount Horeb or the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. He's hiding. And, 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 and here's where we pick up then in 1 Kings chapter 19. And I'm not going to read all of it, just enough to kind of get you settled in. After Jezebel sends word to him in verse 2, it says in verse 3, when he saw that, or when he heard that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there because, you know, he's probably too slow. But he himself, in verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree or a juniper. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise, and eat. The first thing that I want us to see here is the fact of this. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to us is a good crisis. Well, he's had victories so far. He's so used to them. But sometimes you need to hurt a little to find out exactly where God, what God is trying to do in your life. It just seems to be the way we're built. As people, it's how it is. We don't really do well succeeding at diets because it causes us to have to eat less. And that's why they don't work. Because we have to eat less. And we like to eat. We do things that should help us, but they don't work because we don't like to do things that help us. We just really are really good at taking the path of least resistance most times. And so we all long for times with God when it's easy. But it's not always going to be easy. Here's a good point to remember. In your walk with God, at least he's shown me in my life, he's very interested in what I do for him, for sure. But he's more interested and who I am with him, relationally. He cares about what I do in service, but he really is more interested in what I do with him relationally. He loves me before, before he loves what I do for him. And, and something in Elijah's heart's broken. He has all this victory. He sees what God has done. He stood up to these guys. I mean, that moment when you, they, so they've seen that the prophets of Baal have not had any success and they're looking over and they by this time as a nation really don't know if God's God or not. Because it says he fought, they faltered between two opinions. They really didn't know for sure. And Elijah has to pull the trigger on this event. Now what would that have been like to say, God, and we pray you do that now. And nothing. It could have, I mean, that, that's a scary moment right? He put it out there, man. But God did answer. And then this lady says, I'm going to kill you. And she's like, he's like, oh, God can't do anything about that. And he runs off. 
We all have our fault lines in our faith. We all have cracks in our vessel, and they appear at different times. So that's why I say sometimes the best thing that can happen to us is a good crisis. This part is interesting. It says, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree. Don't think of a broom. It's a juniper. It grows in the desert. It gets to heights of maybe about, I don't know, 20 to 40 feet tall. It's very sparse. It does provide a little shade, and it's better than nothing. Kind of like being outside right now. Okay. Man, I tell you, if you don't have much hair on your head, it's been so hot that I can feel the heat emanating off the roof of my truck. And I just thought, well, that's a side effect. I called JT to see if he had the same thing. I don't know why I called him. but <laughs> So there he is in this hot desert. He's scared to death. He's, he's depressed. I mean, he, the joy went plumb out of his sails. Emptied. The air went out of the room. You ever had that happen to you? Man, it's great, it's great, it's great. It's not so great. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. It's a good idea. Best way to a man's heart, to his stomach. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals <laughs> and a jar of water. Wow. And so he ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the, chur- the journey is too great for you, which if you're reading along just as a Bible reader, you're going, apparently he's about to take a big journey. Yeah, 200-mile journey, to be, to, be, to be specific. The very same journey that it took 40 years for the whole nation to come to and come through. But it didn't take Elijah 40 years, 40 days. So he arose, in verse 8, and he drank. And he went, it says, in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And this is so, I'm getting excited as I go through this. He went into a cave on the mountain of God. Now listen, sometimes it's good to cave. It is. Sometimes it's really good to flee to God alone. No one else, no noise, no distraction. And this is very, as I, t- I shared with you since I've been back, I, on, my, on my sabbatical I just got off of, when I parked that little short camper on that river, and it was actually tucked away. I had to back it in there about 75 yards. But it was easy because it's short. And I set it all up and I'm there to be alone with God. I didn't have a woman trying to kill me that I'm aware of, Okay. <laughs> And I pull in there. It was freezing cold that night. It's 28 degrees. So it is cold. And I pull in there, and I'm there to be alone with God, right? So far, so good. I'm good being busy getting to be alone with God. Preparing is fun. So I did. I got there. I got there, and I set everything up, and everything's leveled as best as it could be with the help of a few rocks and a little bit of mm, getting it that way. And, and I'm in the camper, and I've had my tiny little shower because it can't move my arms because it's that small and I drop the soap and I'm like what do I do I can't bend that way so you know but I got through all that and I'm, I'm saying okay well it's it's time to start to be alone with God now and I'm looking and there's no one there you know and I'm like maybe I should eat 
Like, no, I'm not hungry. Well, I could look up some scriptures on my phone about being alone with God. I thought, no, maybe I should pray. Should I kneel? Should I lay down? This is very real conversation going on in my heart because you have to put yourself in that. What would you do? We're not accustomed to this. So finally, just in frustration, I said, Lord, I don't really know what to do, sir. But I'm here. God, I'm here. I'm just here. I'm sitting on this rickety couch because it's leaning a little. And I'm here. And I, here, Here's my Bible. I know this is your word. You, primarily is what we use. What do you want me to do? And before I knew it, it was happening. Because prayer is talking with God. And God begins to listen. Look here. He went 40 days and 40 nights as far as over the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. As I begin to pray, the word of God that had stored up. You know how we talk about what we read in scripture. We can't remember it to save our life if we need to. But then all of a sudden it just began to go and it started coming up and suddenly began to pray. Scripture began to inform my walk and where I was and what was going on and God began to speak and I began to listen. I just began to cry and I just began to get thankful and suddenly I'm in a, I'm in a fabricated cave but it worked because God often meets us when we're alone. That was the whole purpose. And he asked Elijah this question. This is classic what are you doing here, Elijah? And as I'm reading this, it's kind of like me thinking back into that trailer moment. What are you doing here, Mickey? Well, see, it's kind of like this. I'm empty. And I need filled up. I've done my best. And I've run out of juice. And I need your touch. Essentially, that's kind of what Elijah said, because if you go on and read, it says this, verse 10, the answer Elijah gives is the answer of an exhausted man with a warped view of the actual problem. So let's read what he says. In verse 10, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And then if you read down, and I don't want to, I'm breaking this up a little. God asked him a second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? And, And then in verse 14, he says the exact same thing again. So God asked him twice. He gives the same answer twice. And so to Elijah, his reality was simply this. I have been, I've given it my all. I've poured out. I've done it the best that I can. The children of Israel have forsaken you and your altars. I had to rebuild it, you saw. It was in crumbles. Your covenant, has they've torn it down. And, and it says, and, and they've killed your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one that's left. Now, we know that he knew better than that. Because Obadiah told him so. So he couldn't say, I'm the only one left technically but when you're so slammed with life and you get down and you're beaten to the ground a little feels like a lot and to Elijah's perspective he did feel like the only one and to be fair he was on Ahab's most wanted I mean there wasn't anyone sharing second with him 
but he wasn't the only one left. Our, 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 our despair many times and our frustration with the world around us and the problems we're into, because you, you guys talk about your jobs and your works and the bureaucracies and then, of course, all the political junk that seems to be infused into that atmosphere, and it sucks you guys dry. In our despair, many times, truth, the truth of it can get a little skewed, a little, a little bit warped. There was a man that was a football coach. I can't remember his name now because I don't really watch football. But he said this, it is, uh, it is really normal for a man to, to overemphasize the severity or to overestimate the severity of his problems. It's, 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 it's natural for us to overestimate the severity of our problems. Vince Lombardi, was he a coach? Okay, good. Um, and that's what he said. It's, it's common when we're tired, when we're beat down, that, that looks so big. Normally it wouldn't be such a big deal, but now it is. That was, it. That was Elijah. And he did say true stuff in his prayer to God as he's talking, but his whole perspective is just warped. And God says, what, do you, what are you doing here? Well, I'm here because I'm running. <laughs> now, don't forget, there was another man of God, not too, well, probably about six or 700 years before, I'm getting out of order of my slides here, but six or 700 years before, who had this very same experience in the very same cave. At least commentators think it's the same cave. Why not? It's the same mountain, Moses. This is the very place where Moses said, God, <laughs> this is an incredibly big task that you're asking me to do. These people are really hard to get along with so far. We've only been at this for just a little bit, and I'd like to resign. How's this supposed to work out? And then God speaks to him, and then, and then Moses is so enjoying the presence of God, he says, hey, uh, can I see your glory? <laughs> It's like asking the angel in the theophany, Jesus, can I ask your name? Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? I mean, we want to know more about God, and we get close to him. That's just how it is, and, and that's how it is when we cave in with God, because when he shows up, we just want to stay there. Remember the, remember the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is there, and James and John are there, and then guess who else appears? Elijah and Moses. Two men that had cave-in experiences. I don't think that's coincidental at all. But they both got infused with power when they got alone with God. And God just simply asked the question to, to Elijah, why are you here? Now, I got to tell you, reading through the narrative, Elijah doesn't say, well, because of this. He does say what's wrong with him, but he doesn't really answer God, per se. But it's kind of like going to the doctor. You know, you go to the doctor and you've done your WebMD stuff, so you're going to lecture the doctor about what's wrong with you so that he can write the prescriptions you need. You're going to educate the doctor because you have the internet now. It's how theology works, too. Um, but as he's asking you questions... 
You're going to one direction, but he comes up with a whole different thing that's way more sound than your ideas, and you didn't even think to ask those questions. That's because he's trained. You just read a little. God knew exactly what Elijah needed. God knows what we need even before we ask, the Bible says, right? So my question to you is, do you think you ask right? Do I ask right? One of the things that happened when I got finished with my time alone on the river was I said, Lord, do I always have to come to a river to experience your presence like this? And he said, no. You just don't have discipline. I'm like, what? He goes, There's a, and he counted off all these places that I can go to be by myself with him anytime I want to. He goes, you're the one that makes it get so low. I'm always here. You're the one that gets down so low that then it becomes a crisis situation before you finally ask me about it the way you should. That's why I'm trying to convince you guys to tell you. You're, you don't have to be a pastor for this. Just a, You're a born-again child of God. I want to tell you something. Our world is way too dark and way too evil and going at a much faster rate of decay for you to be casual in your prayer life. He's there now. You get, go, alone, go get alone somewhere. You got a garden shed? Put a bucket in there and sit on it. You got a car? Go pull up to one of the falls somewhere and sit in there and talk to God. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And Elijah is one of those who diligently sought Him. It says in verse 11, as we're reading this, that God called Elijah out of the cave and said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And it says, and behold, the Lord passed by. And he passed by in three ways. The first, it says, was with a great strong wind, and it tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces. But the Lord was not in the strong wind. Then... An earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then a fire, and Elijah likes fire a lot because he called fire down on three groups of 50 soldiers after this. But God wasn't in the fire. What God gave Elijah is incredibly uh, anticlimactic, if you will. A still, small voice. That's what God gave Elijah. The Lord passed before him. Same word used when he passed before Moses. And by the way, same word used when Jesus passed by the disciples when they were rowing out on the sea. All tied together. All the same thing. And a still small voice. Here's what I want to get you with this is. Dane Ortland author of Gentle and Lowly, says, The Lord passed by Moses and revealed that His deepest glory is seen in His mercy and grace. Jesus came to do in the flesh and blood what God had done only in wind and voice in the Old Testament. Mark 6 talks all about that. But this still small voice to Elijah, it wasn't big, boom, loud like what we've been used to. That's what Elijah's been conditioned for. It was ordinary. Ordinary. 
but yet ethereal. God was talking to Elijah in a way he wasn't used to. And it calmed his soul and it reassured him. A still small voice requires you and I to be quiet. In the noise, we don't hear him very much. And all of us would love nothing more than for God to shake the place. Smite them. Do something like that. That was Elijah's attitude. Just burn them up. And the disciples even tried it out and said, Jesus, they're being knuckleheads. Can we do what Elijah did and just call fire down and incinerate them? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. A whisper rather than the wind. His power in the ethereal rather than the earthquake. His power in the finite rather than the fire. You see, Elijah, I think, was being weaned off the extraordinary to finish in the ordinary. Because as you notice, if you read on down, he goes, well, here's what we're going to do, Elijah. You're going to go back the way you came. You're going to anoint Haziel as king over Syria. You're going to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And then you're going to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to be prophet in your place. Oh, and Elijah, incidentally, there are 7,000 of my people that I have preserved that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, didn't know that. Changes things when you hear God's voice. The strange thing that I want you to see is this. When Elijah went back, except for calling fire down on the three groups of 50, which you, that's a pretty big deal, his ministry just sort of, well, there, it wasn't like it was before. Now, he did get taken up in a chariot of fire. That's pretty radical. The fact that he never died is pretty incredible. The very man who prayed to die because everyone else had been killed now is not even dying at all. Didn't need to worry about that one, like most of us. Can you imagine the very thing that he laid down under a broom tree and said, just kill me because I'm going to die anyway by a lady. And then God never lets him die at all. <laughs> okay, he's going to, he got, and Elisha there going, duh, duh, duh. he couldn't even talk. He's just like he went off. The chariots of fire and the, and the, and the, the horses of Israel, he's just freaking out. Elijah didn't die. He was worried he would, but he didn't. Not at all. Not even like us. Not even old. I do think he might get a little bit of that in the book of the Revelation, but that's beside the point. Do you worry about things that you forecast? I do. Do you make your problems worse than they are? Yes, you do. Should you live in denial and not pay attention to what's going on in your world? No. Should you make it bigger than God? No. Is God able to give you power inside your soul? Yes. I want to just summarize this and end this way today. This whole exchange with losing, with Elijah losing his grip but finding God's happened because of one primary, fundamental, non-negotiable gift that God has given all his people down through history. Do you know what it is? It's called prayer. Don't overlook 
this fact. Elijah is talking to God. He is praying to God. God is communicating with Elijah. Now, granted, he didn't have a Bible like this. Nonetheless, God is speaking to Elijah. You have a Bible today. God will speak to you too. Do you listen? If the Lord were to say, I'm going to pick on you, Brian, okay. What are you doing here, Brian? Why are you drove out in the middle of this cornfield? Obscured. What are you doing here? What do you want? Well, here's the issue, God. I would say, first of all, kudos to you for going out there and asking God. I hope you got permission. But nonetheless, good for you to get away alone with God. Church, with what we're facing today, the battle that is going to be waged is going to be waged in prayer. That's the only place. And God will do more from that than than you can imagine in 25 years of ministry or trying. He has the, the answer. When we go to prayer, we lose our grip and we find his. Elijah got told what he was supposed to do and you got to admit, the list wasn't fun. It wasn't like, wow. Pretty common things, ordinary. You know, anoint him, anoint him, anoint him. And then he goes off into retirement by ascending into a cloud. A fire with horses, even. Fiery horses. It's weird. That's what happened. I want to share some things. I'm reading a new book now called Thy Will Be Done by E.M. Bounds. Now, let me just say, for those of you who are maybe you can be like, you know, you think a lot, so you can be like, hey, that may not be right. Just because I may read a book doesn't mean I agree with everything the guy says. I eat the meat and spit out the bones, okay? Nevertheless, he was a man that God used when it comes to prayer. He was. And he said this, I just want to read a few things to you. Some of you are reluctant to pray because you're like, I don't really know how to go about it. Every true attempt to pray is in response to the will of God. Now, he said every true attempt. Does James 4, 6 not say you have not because you ask not, or if you do ask, you ask amiss? It does. But every true attempt to pray is in response to the will of God. Prayer may be awkward and inarticulate, kind of like me in that trailer. Well, uh, I'm here. I, should, I, like, should I just talk to me, son? Prayer may be awkward and inarticulate, but it, is, but it is acceptable to God because it is offered in obedience to His will. Did Jesus not say it is His will that all men should pray everywhere all the time? Okay. If I will give myself up to the inspiration of the Spirit of God who commands me to pray, the details and the petitions of that praying will all fall into harmony with the will of Him who wills that I should pray. You know what he's saying there? The Holy Spirit of God is, is going to take over in your life and inform you with what you should be praying about. How many of you have ever went to God with a problem, but you couldn't get past praising? I've had that happen to me. It doesn't happen all the time. But I'll have a problem, and I'll go to God with it, and I just, I just get lost in praising. I'm stuck in, I, I don't feel like I even need to address the problem now because I'm praising God. I mean, that's how, that's, that's how glory, but sometimes I'll maybe have my problem that I think I got to go for, but he'll send me off a different way through the word and through the leading of the spirit. 
Next thing. The littlest prayer expands by the will of God until it touches all words, conserves all interests, and enhances man's greatest wealth and, greatest, and God's greatest good. God is so concerned that men pray that he has promised to answer prayer. I kind of think this is where the wheels fall off our wagons on this. There are so many of you that really don't believe God's going to answer your prayer. It's true. You're kind of doubtful. A little bit doubtful. Which is another way of saying full of doubt. You, you have to admit that if you got to the core of the issue of why you struggle with prayer, it's because you really don't think God's going to listen to you and do anything about it. And that's sad. John 15 says that he wants us to bear fruit and that our fruit, fruit should remain and that if we ask anything, that he'll do it. And, I mean, now, that's all within his will. That's all within the, the keeping of scriptural precedent. That's all of that. That's none of that. I don't want to claim this. That's all just bunk. But according to the will of God, when's the last time you took up God on his word? He has not promised to do something general if we pray, but he has promised to do the very thing for which we pray when we pray according to his will. I still think the best way to say this is Adrian Rogers when he said, the prayer that originates in heaven gets done on earth. And, and what he's conveying is, you, you have to be careful not to set the agenda for your prayer life. You have to be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to set the agenda for your prayer life because the prayer that originates from the throne gets done on earth. That thing's pretty good too. Okay, and then lastly, you're like, oh, be, please be done. This is just kind of some, here's what Ian Bounds thought about prayer. Prayer is a solemn service due to God, an, ad, an adoration, a worship, and an approach to God for some request, the presenting of some desire, the expression of some need to Him who supplies all need, and who satisfies all desires, who, as a father, finds his greatest pleasure in relieving the needs and granting the desires of his children. In other words, God loves to bless his kids. If my kids come to me and say, hey, Dad, you buy me a cheeseburger? I'll say, only if it has bacon. Because I'm going to make it better than what you could ask for. <laughs> That's what God does. Prayer is the child's request. Not to the winds or to the world, but to the Father. Prayer is the outstretched arms of the child for the Father's help. Prayer is the child's cry, calling to the Father's ear, the Father's heart, and the Father's ability. Prayer is the cry that the Father is to hear, the Father is to feel, and the Father is to relieve. Prayer is the seeking of God's great and greatest good. Do you, do you pray like that? Or are you kind of hung up on formality? Because for me, I have just decided with reckless abandonment to charge into the throne room of grace and lay there and say all that I can and listen as much as I can, as often as I can. I would rather have my kids talking to me than to try to feel like they have to put on airs to address me in a certain way because they're hung up on some formality. All I really want most times 
is for them to just talk to me. What's wrong? What do you want? How can I help you? Now God knows that this is the relationship. Do you realize that? Every day it's available to you right now. Elijah was a man whom God used in a mighty way. But, you know, as interesting as it is, uh, James chapter 5 tells us that he was a man just like us. The Greek word used for that means that he had the same exact emotional unbalance and mindset that we do. He wasn't supernatural. But he was super dependent. Are you? I'm going to ask JT to come. Every time at the close of service, we have a time of just response. This is a time for you to think, man, here's what the Holy Spirit is impressing upon my heart. Here's, here's a blind spot that I've not been paying attention to. Here's what I need to do. The altar's open to come and pray. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I can guarantee you that's what the Lord is calling you to do. If you're not with Christ, if you do not possess Christ, if you all you have is your sin and no Jesus, if all you have is just your sin debt that's accrued, you can't pay that. Jesus did. And He tells you to take from Him. For His yoke is easy and His burden is light. You must repent of your sin. See yourself as God sees you and take of what Jesus did on the cross for you and live and be born again and cry out for mercy and say, God, save me from my sin. Be my Lord. That's where you start. And Christian, after you've done that and you've been saved for a while and you're tired and you're weary, just run to your Father and pour it out. And when He asks you what you're doing there, just tell Him. It's easy. As JT sings or plays, you come.